Please open your Bibles for the first time in nearly a month to the book of Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 18. Luke, chapter 18. We're going to begin our time this morning by reading the first eight verses of Luke 18, um, a passage that is well known, uh, commonly referred to as the parable of the persistent widow. Luke 18. <clears throat> 1 through 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, and afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? A familiar passage, a powerful one, giving us hope to endure and encouragement to pray. And as we study this passage, we need to put it in its context. It's been so many weeks since we've been in Luke. You may have forgotten where we came from, but this parable is directly connected to the two sections we looked at before. The connecting link is that phrase, the Son of Man, and the focus on the return of the Son of Man. If you look back in chapter 17, it begins in verse 20, when he was asked by the disciples when the kingdom of God would come. And then in 22, he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. And he's talking about his return and the kingdom he will establish. And again, in verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. Verse 30, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed on that day. And he goes on. And how does this parable end? But with the return of the Son of Man. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So this parable is capping off his instruction. He, he answered the Pharisees about the kingdom's coming. And then he turned and gave further elaboration to the disciples. And he ends the teaching on his return with this parable. That's what connects it. That's the context in which we're to, to look and understand it. And I think that'll help us understand it. But it also connects moving forward. As you may notice, this is not only a parable, but it's a parable where we're told very helpfully by Luke what the point of the parable is. Sometimes you read a parable and it's, what's, what's the point of this parable? But here we're told, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought, not, all, that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He's going to tell them another parable about prayer in verse 9. He also told this parable, and then Luke helpfully adds in, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So we've left the theme here. Next week we'll look at this, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the theme of the Lord's return. But these two parables on prayer are linked as well. Luke links them together. So the parable, 
The persistent widow sits as sort of the cap on Jesus' teaching at this point, on his return, and it's the first of two parables about prayer. And so we're going to look at this in three parts. The first part, verse 1, the introduction. Then in verses 2 through 5, the explanation. And in verses 6 through 8, the application. So we have introduction, explanation, application. And so let's begin. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And so Luke sets up this teaching by telling us what the main focus is. So we've got to begin by asking, who is them? He told them a parable. Well, as I pointed out, because this is still in that section on the Lord's return, the blank here, the audience of the parable is the disciples. Look back at 1722. He said to the disciples, and all of Jesus' teaching about the, the return of the Son of Man is given to the disciples, which is a large group of people. It's, it's thousands in some sense. It's made up of those who would, to some degree, profess allegiance to Jesus, acknowledge Jesus to some level as a teacher, as a rabbi. They're, they're following him. It's, it's a mixed mass. Many of these are genuine believers, and many of these will scatter before the cross. But he's teaching the disciples in contrast to the Pharisees. We've, we've noticed in this last chapter, so he's been alternating the, the Pharisees, the disciples, the Pharisees, the disciples. And so this parable that he told to them is a, is a parable to the disciples, the disciples. And then Luke gives us the purpose, and it's twofold. What is the purpose of this parable? To teach us that we must persist in prayer, and to teach us that we must not lose heart in prayer. Now, a parable is a story that you lay alongside of, like parallel lines, truth and reality, and from that you, you notice things that are similar, and you learn something, something that's true here comes across into real life. And so he tells them this story because something true in this story is also true in our life. And that truth is meant to encourage us, to teach us that we must, it's necessary, we must persist in prayer. We must not lose heart in prayer. Those are the dangers. Jesus has talked earlier, 1722, the days are coming when you will desire or you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. So Jesus has already established that there's going to be a delay before he returns. And in that time of delay, hardship and trial will come and Jesus' people will be longing for his return. And here in this parable, he instructs us who live in that gap between the first coming and the second coming how we ought to conduct ourselves. And so he gives us very helpfully, very kindly, this parable so that we, you and I, make no mistake, must persist in prayer, and you and I must not lose heart. And this parable, this story, is meant to give us the ability, strengthen us in doing that. In fact, in many respects, I think you can measure um, the, the life of a Christian's faith by their prayer life. And discouragement and hopelessness and eventually this losing heart and falling away is connected, linked inseparably with prayer and with hope. And these are problems that beset all of us. I, I know that no other discipline in my life do I struggle with is harder to maintain than my prayer life. And the importance of fixing our hope, not on this world, but the world to come, is, is always a challenge. This world has so many things to offer us to put our hopes in. And so I think we do well to hear this parable that Jesus is teaching. So it's spoken to disciples like you and me, people living between the first and second advent of the Lord. And it's given to teach us to persist in prayer. 
And let's not lose heart in prayer. In fact, before we move on to the explanation, this, this is not the first time Jesus has taught on this theme. Turn back to chapter 11. You get the idea that this theme of persistence and not giving up, not losing heart, is, is important and something that the disciples need to hear repeatedly. You and I need to hear repeatedly. In chapter 11, Jesus teaches the disciples to pray. They call it the Lord's Prayer. It's not the Lord's Prayer. It's the disciples' prayer. You can find the Lord's Prayer in John 17. But here, he teaches his disciples how to pray. And immediately after teaching them how to pray in the first four verses, what does he follow up with? He said to them, verse 5, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, Lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will arise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock. And it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and whoever seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So immediately after teaching the disciples how to pray, he gives them a parable and instruction to be persistent, to not give up, to keep knocking, to keep asking, to, to bear in mind that God is greater and more faithful than a friend, more, greater and more faithful than any human father. It's a similar logic here. We're going to see that God is, is some way contrasting or comparing himself to this unrighteous judge, not that he is like an unrighteous judge, but the point being, if, if this is true with an unrighteous judge, how much more true is it with a righteous one? If this is true of the man who does not fear men, how much more true is it of the one who loves and redeemed and hears the cries of his elect? So turn back to chapter 18 and, and realize that this is instruction we need. The Lord has repeated this theme. We must persevere in hope. We must persevere in prayer. And he repeats this. So this is meant to be important. Prayer life is not incidental. And it's directly connected with perseverance in faith. So now we get to the, the parable itself, the explanations. We've had the introduction. Now we get the explanation. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And so we get the, the two actors in this drama. First, the unrighteous judge. And Jesus names him the unrighteous judge in verse 6. The Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And, and here, we hardly need this title for us to conclude he's unrighteous. We're told plainly, he neither fears God nor respects man which means both in the vertical axis, there's nothing. And on the horizontal aspect, nothing. Being a judge, rendering out justice, is a sacred duty. In 2 Chronicles 19, 5-7, the king installing judges, he says this, Consider 
what you do, for you judge not for man, but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. So a judge in Israel was doing a sacred duty, standing in God's stead, rendering out his verdicts. When things were working properly, God was working through the judge. And the judgments the judge gave were to reflect God's righteous and just character. Here's a judge who doesn't care about that, doesn't care if he offends God, doesn't worry about that. That's not good. That's not good at all. Well, perhaps this judge may, may give equitable judgments because he, he fears people and he wants people to like him. When we learn that's, just, that's not going to work either. He doesn't care. Literally, he was unshameable. He had no shame. Here's a judge who cares not what God thinks, and here's a judge equally who doesn't care what people think. They, they call him corrupt. He doesn't care. They say he's unjust. Doesn't care. Doesn't bother him. Doesn't worry him. He sleeps like a baby at night. What, what do you do with a judge like this, completely corrupt, whose conscience neither instructs him nor the fear of man instructs him? He just does as he pleases. He's an unrighteous judge. He neither fears God nor respects man. So this is pretty much the worst case scenario for a judge. And now we're going to get the worst case scenario for someone needing justice. We've got the, the most corrupt possible official, and then we're going to look at the, the weakest and most powerless possible person, the widow. Now, in Israel, widows were a special protected class. Again and again and again, throughout the Old Testament, God speaks of his heart for the orphan, the widow, and the sojourner, and the fatherless. He gives special instructions not to pervert justice for the widow. Listen to Isaiah 1.17. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. And a few verses later, the Lord rebukes Israel for not doing this. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. See, in Israel, the land passed down through male descent. If you read the story of Ruth, you understand the significance of that. So a widow potentially was in a very weakened state, and, and she needed help and defense, unable to provide for herself in most cases. This is... This is the most impotent and weak person, maybe next to an orphan. And so here's this powerful man, completely corrupt, and here's this powerless woman. And what we see the interplay between them is what we're to learn from. Because despite the fact that this widow is powerless and in a desperate situation, we see that she seeks vindication against her adversary. Vindication. Now the word used for justice here throughout can mean avenged or revenge. It can mean vindication or justice. I think vindication probably gets the idea of it best. It, it's more than just justice because literally in the Greek, she wants it upon or against my adversary. She wants something done to him. There needs to be a reckoning. There needs to be a settling of scores. That there, he's been oppressing her in some sense. We don't know how, perhaps trying to take land or we, do, we know not. But she's looking for vindication. She's been mistreated, she's suffering, she's presumably frightened, distressed, and her only recourse in Israel is to go to the judge. She has nothing she can do. She can't stretch out her arm with her own might and do things, so, so she goes to the judge for vindication. We can presume she's righteous and innocent here, most notably because according to Proverbs 28.1, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous 
or as bold as a lion. And this woman is bold, persistent and bold. In fact, those are your next blanks. She seeks with boldness and persistence. This is the boldness and persistence that accompanies a clean conscience and righteousness. So I think we're to assume, given the contrast of this wicked judge's character and the the already starting position of her pitiable condition, added in with her boldness that her complaint is just, um, that what she's asking for is right. And so she comes again and 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 seeks with boldness and with persistence, kind of like the friend knocking on the door looking for a loaf of bread, right? And then we see the judge's response. Now, this, this guy reminds me of... Um, something from a Dostoevsky novel. He's completely self-aware. Not only does he not fear God and, and not respect man, he knows it and is at peace with it. I love this guy's counsel. Not love, it's, it's amusing how self-aware he is. He, he takes counsel with himself. Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because the widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Th- this man recognizes he doesn't fear God. There's no hypocrisy in him. There's no p- religious pretense. And he doesn't care about people at all. He doesn't give a hoot. And he's just fine with that. There's no self-deception here. He, he, he understands who and what he is. And so he delays, because initially there's nothing in him. He feels no sympathy for the widow. He feels no sense of oughtedness. I need to help her. Most of us have consciences, unless we've seared them. That, that press us, that provoke even unbelievers to do what is right from time to time. No, that, that's not working in him. And so he delays. But despite the fact that he does not fear God, despite the fact he doesn't care, I mean, he could be shamed publicly. Here's this widow. Any Torah-reading Israelite knows the widow is the one person out of all people you're supposed to make sure you give justice to. Oh, he doesn't care. In, in fact, in Deuteronomy... <laughs> Listen to this curse, Deuteronomy 27, 19. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. This man cares nothing about that. But most Israelites would know that. He didn't care. And so he doesn't act. He delays, but then he takes counsel among himself. And if he won't act out of fear of God on that vertical line because of what's right, he won't act because there's a holy God who will judge him, doesn't care about that, and he won't act because of what people will think of him or the applause or scorn he will get. Yet he will act in his own self-interest. And he says to himself, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. See, her persistence and her boldness wears away at this guy until finally, not, not for God's sake, not for her sake, not for what people think about him's sake, but simply for his own sake so that she'll leave him alone, literally beat him down. These are, the, these are strong verbs, violent verbs. When Paul talks about not shadow boxing, but he beats his body, same language. This woman's coming is like body blows to him, is what he's saying. And so to, to get rid of her bothersomeness, he will give her justice. So he's, he's, he's not redeemed at all throughout this story. He's despicable at the beginning. He's despicable at the end. But there's a certain pragmatic self-protection um, going on. That even a wicked judge is going to go after his own interests. And if a widow keeps persistently coming again and again and again and again just to make her go away, he will give her justice. That's, that's the story. 
And it's, it's strange. This is not the first time that God has compared himself or spiritual reality with things that are corrupt like this. Remember the, the parable of the unrighteous steward who stole from his employer to make friends for himself later. And again, what we're learning from, and the, and the notion here is, if this is true in a corrupt and broken sense, if there's some truth here, there's a certain worldly wisdom, a certain um, shrewdness in the case of the steward, how much more true is it in a righteous context? So as God is not saying he's like this judge. God is not saying that at all. What he's saying is, we'll see actually in the next section with the application, what the Lord says Verse 6, the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So we looked at the introduction, the explanation of the parable itself, and now the, the main point, what do we learn from this? What do we get from this? Does God need to be bothered and, 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 and beaten down by our prayers until finally he just grumbling gives us what we ask for so that we'll shut up and leave him alone? No, that is not the point of this parable. The Lord tells us the point of the parable, and that is this, the promise that God will vindicate his elect. God will vindicate his elect. By the way, notice the shift in titles here. The beginning of the parable, Jesus is simply spoken of as he. He told them a parable. Verse 2, he said, verse 6, and the Lord said. And Luke is drawing our attention to his authority now. The one speaking, the one making these promises, the one making these bold declarations of what God will and will not do, is none other than the Lord. And so he has the authority to speak. He's speaking as Lord. This isn't his best Yes, this isn't what he hopes is true. This is an authoritative promise. Because these promises are what we're to bank on that are to lead us to pray without ceasing, which are to lead us to be hoping. And so it, it matters if what Jesus says here is his best guess or authoritative. And Luke reminds us, none other than the Lord is speaking. You can count on what he says. And so the Lord says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. And so here's the point of the contrast. It's not that God is like this unjust judge. Rather, if even an unjust judge will do this, how much more a righteous judge? Those are the points of comparison. We, we saw twice we were told that the judge neither feared God nor feared people. And yet, the contrast is this. God is just and does justly. God is just. His nature, he can't help but be just. And the things he does, therefore, are justice. Listen to Deuteronomy 10.18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And so this is God we're talking about in comparison to this judge. Here's a God who again and again throughout the Old Testament has revealed his heart of compassion for the powerless, for the weak, for the impotent, for the, for the orphan, for the widow, for the sojourner. 
And so in contrast to this judge who neither fears God, here is a righteous God who cares specifically for these types of people. That's the first point of contrast. So even if this wicked, despicable man who doesn't fear God, how much more a righteous and just God? The second point of contrast is that God, in fact, cares very deeply for his elect. It's not for nothing that Luke throws that word in there. Elect, his chosen. God cares deeply for his elect. These are not people he doesn't care about. He chose them. They're his children. And so what Jesus is starting by saying is remember, God is righteous. Remember, God cares for the widow and the orphan. Remember, God cares for the powerless. Remember, God cares for the weak. And remember, God cares for those he chose, whom he set his love upon. He chose them, point one. And he didn't choose them to kick them around and mistreat them. He, he chose them, and we've seen this, to place his love and his mercy and his kindness upon. And they, in response, point two, cry out to him day and night. He chose them, and, and they, as his children, cry out to him. He loves them. There's an intimacy here. How did Jesus teach his disciples to pray to God? Our Father, right? This, this is unprecedented intimacy that we get. And so we need to remember when, when God is slow in answering, or he seems slow in answering, because Jesus insists he is not slow in answering. When, when God seems slow, he's not working on my timetable. He, he is just, and he does justice, and he loves us, and he cares for us. He chose us, and he hears our cry. And that is meant to encourage us to persevere in prayer and to persevere in hope. And then Jesus gives us this grand promise. God will vindicate them quickly. God will vindicate them quickly. Look at verse 7. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. So there's the promise. And that, of course, is the rub for us because my definition of speedily... And my definition of delay and God's definition of speedily and delay at times can differ, right? This would be no problem if every time you or I were in hardship, anytime you and I were in suffering, anytime you and I were in a difficult place, we cried out and boom, God immediately answered. There'd be no, there would be no need for an exhortation to persevere, to not lose heart. So Jesus' very command that we're to not lose heart assumes that even though what he just said, and we're going to take a minute to try to unpack this, God doesn't delay, he will be speedily, there still will be plenty of temptation to lose heart. We need to hear this so that we won't lose heart, so that we will persevere. So don't misunderstand what Jesus says as though there's a promise here that the second you ask for help, boom, your circumstances change. Because there's a number of ways, right, that God can help us in trial. Because what's pictured here is the suffering that comes... In that in-between time, Jesus has already hinted about this, hasn't he? Turn back to uh, 17, um, 33. Well, it's starting 30. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever who loses his life will keep it. There are going to come times in the times between the first and second coming where you will be torn between the desire to protect your physical life now 
and in so doing potentially forfeit your spiritual life or lay hold of spiritual life, be faithful to the Lord, and yet run the risk of peril to your own body. Church history is littered with the testimony of martyrs, people suffering. Jesus is assuming that here. That's what they're crying out for. That's why there's a cry for, for justice and vindication. Turn, turn to the other end of the Bible. Turn to Revelation chapter 6. And this is what the Bible is assuming if, if you became a Christian thinking that that was going to make life easy, you, you were sold a bill of goods. Becoming a Christian is, is following after Christ in suffering. All who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. And Jesus has already warned us again and again and again, don't come after me unless you're willing to pick up my, your cross and follow. And this whole parable is assuming that context, that milieu. So in Revelation chapter 6, we see under the throne of God, souls crying out. What are they crying out for? Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So even in the book of Revelation, we see God's children, God's people crying out for this vindication. Under the very throne of God, John sees souls who've been martyred crying out for vindication. You can read through the Psalms. That desire that you feel when you're mistreated, that desire you feel when you suffer wrong for no good reason, that's right. There's something right about that desire. I, I want justice. I want things fixed. I want things made right. The, the problem is when you and I try to take that into our own hands, I with my own might, I with my own power, my own shrewdness, I will fix this. I will make this right. I'll teach them to pick on me. I'll show them who's boss. No, we're to pray without ceasing, without losing hope, crying out for God to vindicate us, for God to give us justice. We're to turn to him and trust that he will vindicate them quickly. Because that's the temptation. God can take too long. And so, Lord, if you're going to delay, I guess I'll have to take care of it, right? That's what we're tempted with. When we get angry, when we try to make things, that's what we're doing. God's timetable is too slow. God's justice doesn't come speedily enough, so we will meter out justice ourselves. And we reap the fruit that we sow. So Jesus gives this great promise. If, if you're suffering, if you're, if you're languishing somewhere where you're being mistreated, where you're suffering oppression, it can be in the workplace, people, you know, Simple things of people mocking you and ridiculing you. You could be in a difficult relationship. There's all forms of suffering. I, and I think this would even include uh, disease. I mean, isn't there a sense in which Jesus died on the cross? Why won't you come back, Lord, and eradicate death, suffering, and dying? How much longer will we in our bodies groan and creation groan? We read, new, we read newscasts of the suffering in the world around us, and we say, Maranatha, Lord, come back. Put an end to this. How long, O oh Lord? You've, you've paid for it. You've bought it. Let us receive the kingdom that you will bring where justice flows down, where, where tears are wiped away, where death 
disease and dying is no longer in this world. We cry out, and that's, there's something right about that. The Christian message is not just sort of suck it up, buttercup, it's okay, you deserve it, deal with it. No, there's something very right about longing for justice. There's just something wrong about trying to bring it about yourself. There's something wrong about not responding to your enemy by turning the other cheek, but by striking them. I mean, Jesus has already taught us this, right? And earlier in Luke, turn back to chapter 6, his ethic, the Sermon on the Plain, verse 27. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Now, if you take that literally, you take that seriously, you start doing that, you are going to be taken advantage of. You are going to be mistreated. You are. Once people get, a, once people get that about you, oh, some of them will respond to that and soften and, and see the beauty and the glory in what you're doing, and others will simply view you as another mark to be taken. Verse 29, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. As you wish others to do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that for you? For even sinners love those who love you, love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount, but love your enemies. Do good, lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful, the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So that's Jesus' ethic. That's what he taught on the plain. That's what he taught in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what he taught to all his would-be disciples. And as we embrace that, we are embracing suffering. There are going to be people who, when you turn the cheek, they strike you again. And, and we're hardwired to say, don't tread on me. Mess with the bull, you get the horns, you know, all those slogans that we've got. And God says, no, love your enemies, but take that to me. Take that to me. That part of you that cries out against the injustice, that part of you that cries out against that mistreatment, take it to the Lord in prayer cry out to him and trust him in his timetable and his justice that it will be perfect. Will be, he's, he's not delaying because he doesn't love you. He's not delaying because he's unjust. Now notice here, it doesn't say it'll be instantaneous. What we're promised is there will not be unnecessary delay. There will not be unnecessary delay. He will not delay long over them. But we got a hint at some of the answer when we looked in Revelation, right? Why, why was God delaying his judgment there, shockingly, because there were more martyrs appointed yet to die. In 2 Peter 3.9, we're told not to count, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. One of the reasons the Lord's delaying and sending back Jesus is because not all of his sheep have come into the fold yet, and he's intending to get every last one of them in. So God may delay from your perspective in answering your prayer when you're crying out, help, being mistreated, help, this hurts. We long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, just as Jesus predicted we would. And yet he says, if, if God seems to be delaying, there is no unnecessary delay. 
we need to trust that God knows what he's doing. And if God has not responded to your prayer, my prayer, in the way I want him to, in the timetable that I want him to, he knows better and he has better intentions. But we need to believe and remember he, he is just and he does care for us. And we can be tempted to think maybe God just doesn't care. He doesn't hear me. Maybe he's got more important things to do. No, he chose you. He set his love upon you. He cares for the powerless. He has a heart that goes out to the weak. And and these promises that Jesus gave are meant to buoy us up in perseverance, in in prayer, and in hope. But I want you to notice also there's a warning that comes at the end. What Jesus, in effect, says is, okay, here's what you can bank on. God will give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. He will not long delay over them. He will give justice justice to them speedily. God will vindicate them quickly. He won't waste a moment of delay that is not necessary. You can bank on that. You can act on that. But here's the flip side. You can trust in God and his faithfulness, but then Jesus says, but when the Son of Man does return, how faithful will he find his disciples? Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? God can be counted on. God can be trusted And we get the clear implication, he does not expect to find a large quantity of faithfulness on this earth. So I want to get three points of application of this for us as we think of this other half. First, our final and full vindication occurs at Christ's return. Our final and full vindication occurs at Christ's return return. God may and he does meter out vindication now. I hear stories of people being vindicated through God's providence, through his goodness, God granting relief, God rendering out justice, but we all know too well that justice in this life now is not perfect. There are times the bad guy gets away with it. There are times the good guy gets the blame. There are times when the the righteous are condemned and the wicked are acquitted. We we know that. And ultimately, the, the, the the vindication that we look for, the, the balancing of the scales that we long for will not come until finally the Lord returns. Listen to 2 Thessalonians chapter 5. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. So the church is being persecuted, they're being afflicted. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considered it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. So when, when does God grant the perfect and complete relief to his children? When does he punish the wicked? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you that was believed. So understand that Things aren't finally going to be right until the Lord returns. This is why the church throughout the ages has cried out, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And God does, and we can pray for it. We're, we are to pray again and again and again for, for it now. 
but know that the fullness of justice, vindication, and vengeance will not come until he comes. Second, perseverance in prayer and persistence in hope stem from faith. Perseverance in prayer and persistence in hope stem from faith. And here's how I see that. This parable is meant to teach us to pray always and not lose heart. And yet Jesus, after giving these marvelous promises, he reminds us of God's character. God, God won't delay. He won't forget you. He wonders whether there'll be faith. And so the implication is this. Faith, trusting, believing, banking on what Jesus has just said and similar promises to it, is what will cause us to persevere in faith and to endure in hope and steadfastness. Or to flip it the other way, if we don't persevere in prayer and we don't persevere in hope, we do lose heart, then we didn't believe Jesus and what he said. So when Jesus asks that question at the end, it makes it clear that what he's just told us is a measurement of faith. That our prayer life, as we persist in prayer, and our perseverance and hope is an evidence of faith. And the flip side of that is where the prayers begin to dry up because, you know, maybe God doesn't care. Maybe he's feeling mean today. Our faith is, is, on, is on a low ebb. Perseverance in prayer and persistence in hope stem from faith. There's a lot of passages I could read to back this up. Let me just read one in 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul knew suffering and mistreatment like no other. He, he records his list of sufferings in 2 Corinthians 12, but in chapter 4, he writes this. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction, light, momentary affliction, by the way, which included being stoned and left for dead, shipwrecked, beaten, whipped, you can read Acts, you can read 2 Corinthians 12, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, which is to say, with eyes of faith. I'm not looking to what I can see in front of me, I'm looking and trusting what God's word tells me, and by faith I'm seeing those things and looking to them. The things that are seen are transient, but the thing are it's transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So faith is what causes us to persevere in prayer, and faith is what causes us to persevere in steadfastness, not losing hope. You can flip that around another way as well. Point three, I think you can get from this, that our prayer life reveals who we believe God and ourselves to be. Our prayer life reveals who we believe God and ourselves to be. Because if we really understood God as Jesus has depicted him, the Father, we can come at any hour of the day or night, knock on that door, we have needs, and he doesn't get angry. We ask for, for an egg, he doesn't give us a viper. We ask for a fish, he doesn't give us scorpions. He loves us, he gives good gifts, he won't delay. If we believed that, and if we believed that we were like this widow, helpless, having no other recourse, having an enemy in this world, needing help and protection, if we believed those two things, then we would be praying without ceasing. Which makes me think that if we're not praying without ceasing, if we're not persevering in hope, perhaps it's because we don't believe one of these two identities. I mean, either one of them would be sufficient. 
if God is as Jesus depicts him, and he is, why wouldn't we continually be coming before him? Or if we really understood we are as powerless, as helpless, and as in much need of defense as this widow, would we not be crying out for help? This, this widow goes to an unrighteous judge because it's her only recourse. It's her only hope. It's her only opportunity to get what she needs. Do we view ourselves as that powerless? I, I think part of the reason, at least in my life, why I don't pray as I ought is I think I can handle things. I think I got this. I can fix this. I can make this right. I can do what needs to be done. And I'll save prayer for the big things. I don't often view myself as powerless and as weak as this widow. And then God lets something come into your life that reminds you, yep, (laughs) our life is a vapor. And so we start believing the hype about ourselves. We start thinking we're powerful. We we are going to deal with this. And so a lack of prayer, I think, suggests that maybe we've forgotten who God is or we've forgotten who we are. Because if we understand who God is and we understand who we are, would we not, why would we ever cease from bringing our prayers to our Heavenly Father? And Jesus reminds us of this again and again and again, which suggests to me we we need this encouragement. He teaches disciples, pray our Father art in heaven. Then he tells them, look, you guys give good gifts to your kids. You guys, when your children come to you and say, Daddy, can I have a glass of water at night? Don't, don't put some you know, vinegar. Here you go. At least I hope you don't. You, you don't do that. How is God going to do something like that? Why does he repeat this if the notion isn't that slowly, subtly, we begin to view God as more cold, hard, calloused, uncaring, mean as we're told again and again and again and again he's he's not like that and and if it seems like he's delaying it's not because of that i think our prayer life reveals very well who we believe god and who we believe ourselves to be jesus wants us to bank on his promises to bank on his words to believe that whatever it may seem like god is just and does justly. God cares for you. He hears your prayers. He will not delay. Keep coming before him. Persevere in prayer. Do not grow weary. Do not lose heart. You have the ear of the God of the universe, and you have his repeated instruction and command to come before him again and again and again and again in prayer. Let's take advantage of that. I'm going to call the worship team up as we sing our closing song. It's such, such a privilege. And we know that before God's throne, we have an advocate, the Lord Jesus, interceding on our behalf for our prayers. Let's sing, what a friend we have in Jesus.